Hello everyone, it's September 25th, 2018. This week is a big week for rock hopping and planet spotting. Minerva two touches down, and I use that word loosely, on an asteroid, and Tess has already found a few exoplanets. It's gonna be a bit of a science orbit, so let's get into it and lift off. We have Clear the Tower. Welcome to episode 177 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So we are here, finally. All right, so we had a little bit of a delay, which happens a lot. Ben, you had said that maybe, that maybe we should begin recording. We should all be here about, like, what, 15 minutes prior, but we're already recording about 40 minutes later than we should be because of technical difficulties, which seem to arise one time out of every three episodes, you'd say, or, yeah. or at about 50% <laughs> yeah. of the time. Yeah. So uh, I have something a little more interesting, kind of. So in two weeks... So I, I guess that's like sun. It, it, it's a Saturday night in two weeks is going to be the first uh, RTLS at Vandenberg. And Ooh. so I contacted my dad and I was like, hey, uh, can we start planning for this? Like, because, you know, because he can get me on base. And he's like, oh, uh, yeah, I'm officiating a wedding that night. <laughs> ah. I'm like, no. So I was like, OK, well, can this person who is a contact like can they help get me on base? And he goes, uh, no, they're related to the person that I'm marrying, so they're going to be at the <laughs> wedding too. <laughs> so if you can't get onto base, how close can you get? Not very close. The way that the that the launch site is set up, there are some places off base that you can see the launch, but you're not going to be able to see it until a couple of seconds into the flight. So I... I yeah. Every time there's a launch at Vandenberg, there are a bunch of Reddit posts that go up saying, where's the best place to watch the launch? And the answer is always, there really isn't. Mm. So that's why I was so happy that I, you know, I had connections through my dad and maybe, you know, maybe that would work out and it, yeah, it didn't. So I know he's going to listen to this. So yeah, you need to feel bad for performing a wedding on my, on my special day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is your special day. Well, you've never seen a launch, you know, like up close. So yeah, you have to do that. But it seems like for each opportunity that presents itself, there's always something that comes up that prevents you from yep. doing so. It's always something. Yep. You live how far away from Vandenberg? Uh, Like six and a half, seven hours. Wow. So that's a good, yeah, that's a decent drive. It's worth it though. I mean, yeah. Okay, so podcast. I mean, we got some pretty cool stuff, so oh, yeah. we should get to it. Yeah, let's go ahead and move on to this week in spaceflight history. So, uh, we got some winners, and uh, you said that this is more than you expected, and me too, because yeah. your little analogy here, I would have never picked up on it, but apparently some <laughs> other people did. All right, so uh, the clue from last week was some new to branches can steal nidocytes from jellyfish. Our winners this week uh, were Mike Carper, Chris Bush, Tech Dragon on Twitter. Uh, Valentin Frank, Chubby Turkosi, Ben Hallert, and Ken Simon also on Twitter. Ken Simon's name sounds really familiar, but he started a, a new DM chain, so I don't know if he's guessed before, but uh, welcome to the new folks. This week in spaceflight history is the 29th of September, 1945. It's the day that Von Braun arrived in the U.S., so this date's a little fuzzy. Um, and most of the people who wrote in were kind of like, ah, I don't know exactly the date. And some people said a, a date that was slightly off, either the 30th or the 28th, something like that. So I don't think that anybody super agrees on exactly what day uh, Von Braun arrived in the U.S. But I found a source called apesinspace.co, and it cites the 29th of September very specifically. Um, and it also has um, an image of Von Braun with uh, JFK in the back of a car. 
Um, and I, I don't know if that's from his initial arrival or not, but you know, seems it's captioned the 29th of September. So, so who knows? So yeah, I was specifically talking about Von Braun, but in, in reality, this is operation paperclip. So basically world war two is, you know, coming to a close, uh, VJ day was, you know, just the previous month. And so as the U S is recovering from this, of course, it's looking towards its next, you know, its next challenge. Um, which is the coming Russian Cold War and the space race with Russia. As the you know, as the war comes to a close, basically there are a bunch of German scientists who had been developing war technology for the Nazis. And of course, you know, the Nazis had well, maybe not allies, but sympathizers. And some of these uh, sympathizing countries uh, probably were at a risk for picking up these German scientists. And so the the U.S. said, you know, well. These scientists are, are basically producing technology that is ahead of its time, right? There was some technology that was put into use that wasn't even, you know, at a technology, uh, technology readiness level uh, that it was appropriate for the uses that it was put into. So they're kind of like, okay, we need to pick up as many scientists as we can. We'll put them into use, um, building things for us, uh, taking us to the moon, building us potentially, you know, uh, weapons or, or technologies that are useful in wartime. But I think a, a big chunk of this was just making sure that nobody else got this, uh, this gray matter. So by the beginning of September, Operation Paperclip was approved by President Truman. It was a f kind of a follow-on from Project Safe Haven, which was just an attempt to put an end to further research by these German scientists. And then that kind of turned into Operation Overcast. Uh, it might have been Operation Safe Haven. I might have mistyped that. Uh, but then, then it kind of moved into Operation Overcast, which was a recruiting program, but it was, it was very limited, very preliminary. That got turned into Operation Paperclip, uh, which was basically an approval to bring a thousand scientists to the U.S. And... The phrasing was, you know, military surveillance or, you know, these people are going to be under military surveillance. They're going to be here for a limited amount of time. But I know that a lot of these people stayed in the U.S. for the rest of their lives. I don't know if anybody actually uh, left the U.S. Also, I get the feeling that there was some sort of implicit pardon uh, granted as well, because only I think one or two of these scientists were even tried for uh, any sort of crimes or, you know, uh, co collaboration with the Nazis. Um, but nobody was ever um, successfully or, or nobody was found guilty. So, you know, it, there were a lot of people who did a, a lot of questionable things, including Von Braun, right? So mm -hmm. Von Braun uh, basically oversaw a rocket program that included slave labor, and he knew about it. Um, he might not have known to the extent to which the the slave labor occurred, but he, he definitely knew that it was occurring. He knew that there were people being... Uh, abused to carry out his the fulfillment of his research right to to assemble these rockets and that's you know that that's not okay but it, in this time when we had you know we we saw ourselves as having very few choices the u.s kind of decided that it was acceptable it might not have been great but you know we were going to live with it so you know of course von braun uh basically took us to the moon uh he saved the saturn five he oversaw the creation of the Apollo program and, and human space flight up to the Apollo program. Um, but he wasn't the only person, you know, included in these thousand strong scientists from, uh, from operation paperclip. Another super famous name is Herman Oberth, who, uh, 
I'm sure a lot of our listeners are going to be familiar with the Oberth effect. And I mean, you can look on Wikipedia and there's not even like a complete list on Wikipedia. It's just name after name after name of people who contributed to spaceflight. So there you go. That's this week in spaceflight history. Cool. All right. So what is our clue for next week? All right. Next week in 1958, the clue is from white comes black. 1958 from white comes black. All right. Hmm. So if you think you know what that is in reference to, give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF and good luck. And at least... I can pronounce that one. <laughs> Good luck, everyone. Minerva 2 touches down on asteroid Ryugu. I can't yeah. say that very well. So Yeah, Ryugu. Yeah. My Japanese isn't the best. So Hayabusa 2 has uh, reached the asteroid. And yeah, we've seen some really cool photos already, mm-hmm. including one of a, like, a silhouette of the spacecraft, which I thought was really neat. So we'll link to the Hayabusa Twitter account in the show notes, which is great because they put up live photos as it was coming in. And these photos are such a great example of a photo effect called Heiligenschein, which is like this halo that appears around the shadow of a thing that's taking a photo of its own shadow. So it's particularly apparent in like video of drone or like video shot from drones up in the air. But you can even see it if you are walking through a grass field, you'll see like you'll see a halo around your head, the shadow of your head. And it's just because um, as the angle of incidence approaches zero, the shadows get more and more obscured by whatever's casting the shadow. I mean, it's it's kind of a, an obvious effect, but it results in some pretty spectacular images. So in, in these images from Hayabusa, you can see a, a halo, a brightness around its own shadow. And then as it gets really close, you can see a lot of detail in the shadow. Just it's oh, it's so wonderful. Yeah, I see. You're, ta- you're talking about the TIE Fighter one. Yeah, it does kind of look like no, a TIE I... Fighter, actually. All right. <laughs> All right. So Hayabusa 2. Obviously, it's the second, and so what was Hayabusa? So this was launched in 2003, uh, heading towards an asteroid, Itokawa, uh, which is the same type of asteroid as Hayabusa 2 is heading to, what they call rubble piles, which I think is interesting. They're just basically relatively loose conglomerations of rock, and so they're actually so loosely bound that if they orbit near a larger asteroid or even a planet, they actually can get tidally changed, their shape can deform and so we actually yeah (laughs) right it's actually a a, a proper name astronomers we come up with some dumb names and planetary scientists but uh this was actually an appropriate one so anyway Hayabusa was launched in 2003 reached this asteroid in 2005 and managed to get samples back to us in 2010 but it had all sorts of issues it's almost comic uh on the way there a solar flare damaged one of its uh, ion engines then when it got ready to drop a little rover uh which also had a kind of a hopping design because of the low surface gravity the hopper missed and it just kind of sailed off into space uh the sampling mechanism failed so they weren't able to get nearly as much as they wanted it involved multiple landings on the asteroid and on the second landing they lost contact with Hayabusa on the second landing so it delayed the mission by a bit And then on the return, it had thruster leaks and another ion engine was lost. And so it did manage to return a whopping 1,500 microscopic grains, uh, whereas they were hoping for a much bigger uh, sample. I thought this was neat. I looked into it. Uh, Evidently, this idea of trying to hop 
on these small objects uh, goes all the way back to Phobos 2, which was a yeah, Soviet one to try to head and land a hopper on Phobos, one of the two moons of Mars. And in that, in that case, Phobos 2 lost contact, and so they uh, weren't able to do anything there. Yeah, that was kind of Hayabusa 1, which I posted in uh, the Discord, that tribute video. I thought it was hilarious. Uh, the solar flare roasting you know, the little cartoon cat. And then when it pulls out the net to scoop up the sample and then it just drops the net and the net kind of... <laughs> I didn't follow that too well because I don't speak Japanese and the whole thing's in Japanese, right? Uh, oh, I mean, yeah, I yeah. So thing, but... just, just from the graphics, you could see like that solar flare damaging the engines. Uh, you basically see the little cat cartoon that represents, you know, the spacecraft just get roasted. And then suddenly it's got like the cartoon bandages over its head and, you know, on its arms. And then the the net was supposed to be the sample return. And then it just dropped the net, which was the equivalent of missing the rover landing on it. I guess, yeah, I guess actually, sorry, that's a little different then. I don't know. I was thinking, I was thinking in terms of metaphors as well, because I don't really, I couldn't really follow the, yeah. the language either. Yeah. So, I mean, the upshot though, was that after all these problems, Hayabusa 2, which was actually uh, approved before the sample of Hayabusa 1 even returned to Earth, um, was trying to just learn from these mistakes and not have them. And so that one headed to uh, Ryugu on December 3rd, 2014, where Ryugu is uh, the Dragon Palace. Just a fun little aside, I like. Uh, that's the same RYU as in Ryu from uh, Street Fighter. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so it headed to Ryugu on December 3rd, 2014, rendezvoused with it uh, June of this year, 2018. And so um, it's in a uh, also in a heliocentric trailing orbit. And so that's how it's able to basically kind of hover above this asteroid. Hayabusa 2 is just kind of following it. And so it could get really close. And there's this wonderful GIF showing, you know, from the first kind of close-up images all the way to, you know, getting very close to the surface. Because it was able to hover, uh, I don't have the number, something like, I think, they say 60 meters above the surface was its closest approach when it deployed the rovers. Do you guys have that number? I'm not... Yeah, 60 meters is when it, they call it the trigger altitude, and then the separation altitude was 50 to 55 meters. And then it didn't start ascending until it got down to 30 meters. Wow, that is close. So I just wrote a few little things about... um. So what is Ryugu like? It's uh, it's also a rubble pile asteroid, so one of these loosely, you know, loose conglomerates of rock, which uh, gives it such a low surface gravity, it has an escape velocity of only a few centimeters per second. Mm -hmm. Hence the whole idea of hopping rather than trying to rove across the surface. And one thing that I love about asteroids is that all the images that you see of them are much higher exposure than what you would see. So this Ryugu in particular has a, an albedo or reflectivity of 0 0.05. So that's mm -hmm. comparable to black acrylic paint or freshly mm -hmm. laid asphalt. So these things are really dark uh, if you were to actually just go and travel there and so um it could be worth uh you know why doing these missions you sometimes hear about these sort of you know arguments you know what's worth why are we bothering doing something like this when we have problems here on earth well even if you're that cynical uh mining asteroids can be very lucrative at some point in the future potentially and so i saw a figure quoted for uh, ryugu of potentially being worth 95 million dollars what is this asteroid composed of that it could be worth that much because uh I mean, this is just a loose rubble pile, as you said. It doesn't sound like it's made of solid gold or anything like that. Right, right. But my my, my guess, uh, actually not being yeah, too well uh, too familiar with uh, asteroid mining, is that it still has the type of trace minerals that are very valuable. Like, uh, isn't lithium one of these ones that's really big? We sometimes hear about China sometimes will have an embargo because there's a lot of these trace elements that are very valuable for electronics and whatnot. 
the upshot is, from what I understand, it's the same sort of thing as the kind of trace minerals that you would uh, expect. They're the same types of trace minerals that are valuable for a lot of things like electronics and whatnot here on Earth. And maybe um, just because they formed, you know, they're the same type of stuff as the Earth, for example. But when the Earth formed, you know, the heavier stuff sank towards its core while the lighter stuff kind of stayed up in the outer crust. So there might be some value, uh, value to that, too, where it being so low density means that you, you know, you don't have these kind of things that have gone and hidden themselves away towards the center of the planet. Instead, they're, yeah. it's all accessible. Yeah, I, th I think the nickel, the nickel and the cobalt are like the big things. Cobalt. Yeah, I think every time I said lithium, cobalt was really what I wanted to say. <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, it's pretty close on the periodic table, right? <laughs> and so one thing that really surprises me is given how low the surface gravity is, which I think is something like one eighty thousandth of Earth. I mean, it's like so it practically doesn't have gravity. And yet these things are hopping around. So do they have any means of actually fixing themselves to the asteroid? Or do they take these, I guess, extremely gentle hops? Because just as you said, it takes, what, a couple centimeters per second to escape or something like that? I mean, how are they moving around on the surface and not just simply floating away? Because it seems as though something as light as, well, maybe not solar pressure, but almost as light as that, or even the asteroid's rotation, which I don't know if it has rotation. It must, because uh, according to the images that I've seen, it looks like it's moving slightly, right? So how is that mm -hmm. working? Oh, yeah, yeah. I think it's got a 16-hour period, which... Okay. I mean, so the centrifugal force isn't going to be so bad because it's, you know, a little shy of a kilometer in radius, but it, that's definitely going to be an outward force, which uh, I'm with you. It is a little surprising that anything could stick to the surface. So the rotation period is actually about seven and a half hours, like give or take. So oh. yeah, I guess that's enough to keep it on there, but... Yeah, it does look like it's got these little kind of uh, mm -hmm. spikes protruding from the top mm -hmm. and bottom. These uh, sort yeah. of look like little barrels with you know it's spikes a, it's almost like diamond shaped so it's our it's already got like a, a equatorial a, equatorial bulge equatorial yeah yeah it's got like rocks almost protruding from its poles yeah so yeah i think i guess yeah so the upshot must be that the landers sorry yeah the rovers can't just rely on just resting on the surface and so it looks like they do have little spikes to maybe hold them in and apply enough of a grip that they don't just go and get flung out by the below gravity and the uh, centrifugal oh, rotation. Oh, oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, um, aren't those just for for digging in when they're rolling so that they can actually get get a grip on the surface? I don't think that those are actually used to affix them to the surface. Well, when you say that they're rolling, okay, so these rovers like actually rove or they roll or do they hop? Right, right, right. Yeah, they definitely don't. They don't have wheels. Chubby says it's the jumping bean method, so they can apply a, a rolling moment, or I guess a pitch or a yaw moment. But by by rolling, they don't just stick to the surface and roll across the surface. They roll and and bounce themselves up, right? Yeah, I'm visualing like you know, like a person doing a somersault. Yeah. So so David, if you're talking about like rolling with wheels, that's definitely out. But you know, in terms of the entire thing moving, I think it's hard to differentiate between an actual roll and an, and a hop. Okay. Yeah. Because the the rovers themselves, they are kind of like barrel shaped, right? Is mm -hmm. that how you would describe them? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. As crazy as these numbers are, you know, it is you know a kilometer you know, diameter chunk of rock. So it's it's a big thing by some standards, you know, by asteroid yeah. and planetary standards, it's tiny, but I wouldn't want one of these, you know, falling on me or something. It's like a magic world, you know, like when, when you start getting into the headspace of thinking about jumping around on an asteroid like this, it just... You guys say something about the rovers? Because 
don't know about you guys, but looking into this, it is such a confusing naming scheme. Because the first ones were deployed as a set, and they're called, it was the Minerva 2-1 rovers, which consist of rover 1A and 1B. And then next year, there'll be the Minerva 2-2 rover, which is just rover 2. I don't think this is valuable, maybe, but... Uh, yeah, and uh, Minerva 1 was also... Was that two two rovers or just one? I think it was just one, where Minerva 1 was the one on Hayabusa 1. Uh, Minerva... Actually, it wasn't Minerva 1. It was just Minerva. Minerva, yeah. yeah. And it was it was uh, 20.8 ounces. So super, super, super tiny. Yeah, these are two... What, two and a half pounds? Yeah. So these are, these are solar-powered, so I guess power isn't the main issue because... Uh, that's something that they don't have to worry about. Plus, the amount of energy that they have to exert is not much. I mean, we had just discussed that they right. don't have to provide much in the way of, you know, like pitch and all that. I mean, they just have to move a little bit forward. I'm not sure how. Yeah, yeah, they have a little mass on the interior that kind of just spins and torques the rover up into the air. Well, rover 1A and 1B just torque. Minerva 2-1, which is also known as Rover 2, has a couple of different ways it can hop. Oh. And then Mascot, which is the fourth rover, also just hops, I think, just like 1A and 1B. Yeah, I was going to say, I wasn't too familiar with the difference between Minerva 2-1 and Minerva 2-2, like the, the Rovers 1 and the Rover 2. So it's it's interesting that it sounds like they just spin up the interior mass Whereas a lot of these kind of hopping rovers that we use or that, that we test on Earth, they actually have to spin up um, a gyroscope and then apply a brake so that they can get all of that um, rotational, the, the change in rotational energy all into, you know, a fraction of a second, which is enough to pick it up and hop it. It's kind of interesting that they can just you know, spin up a motor and that's that's enough. Yeah, there's got to be some significant engineering challenges, but I guess that's why, you know, it took two spacecraft essentially to do this. Although I guess they didn't have the chance to test Minerva on the original Hayabusa since it missed. But yeah, so really good job so far. Yeah, so what's uh, still to come? So we already kind of mentioned that there's a mascot, which is another one of these landers, uh, rovers, hoppers, whatever you want to call them. I guess they, they're called rovers, and though in the actual documentation, they very quickly seem to go and switch to asteroid hoppers uh, <laughs> when they refer to them. But anyway, mascot I thought was neat. It's a German-French uh, experiment, actually. And so they uh, got to piggyback a ride. And then there's, of course, the other Rover 2 that we talked about. And as for the, you know, spacecraft proper, Hayabusa 2 proper, it's going to be doing three uh, landings slash samplings where it's not the bulk of the craft isn't going to be touching down. But essentially what it, it looks like it does is it lowers this sort of conical section, this little tubish thing to the surface and just fires this small little projectile to kick up material. And then it just lets that material make it to the base of the spacecraft where there's three different collectors as well as sort of a comb that'll catch anything in case those collectors fail. And uh, it's going to be doing two samplings with that method. And then it actually then has a larger impactor, which has explosives on it to make a much larger, uh, you know, it's going to have a, I think a four meter impact crater is what they're anticipating. And so that one's supposed to just kick up a lot more material for their third and final sampling. And so uh, that was kind of tricky to figure out, like, exactly. They talk about impactors, and sometimes they're talking about the one type, which is just to kick up, you know, little small bullets, essentially, to kick up some material. And then they do have this whole small impactor probe, which is going to, you know, really kick up a lot of stuff. So the timeline, the mascot, 
rover in you know just a few weeks october 3rd 2018 they're hoping to get that one down there so hopefully uh, given their fast turnaround time on twitter we'll get to see those images then the first touchdown for uh, the spacecraft to do some sampling is a uh, to be determined uh, but presumably later this year and then there's going to be a, a nice big gap uh, due to it basically being in the same direction as the sun so we can't communicate with the spacecraft anymore the second touchdown will be in February 2019, next year, to get some more sampling. Then the big impactor will go and kick up some stuff in uh, March or April. And they, you know, basically have a month, I guess, uh, until, you know, the spacecraft then has to go in and sample it. Because, right, with this low surface gravity, that material is going to stay up in the air for evidently at least, you know, a matter of weeks. Well, so I just want to add, it, it's really cool that, like you said, it's going to, Hayabusa is going to get away from the explosion, but it's actually leaving a camera on that side of the asteroid to observe the explosion. Oh, that's awesome. Because, yeah, <laughs> I knew that the impactor was doing the other side, but yeah, that's brilliant. Because we, I mean, we, we do impacts all the time, right? That's kind of like a staple of how to study underneath the surface of an object. But usually, you know, the only imaging is coming from a distant you know, semi-distant orbiting spacecraft. And so that's going to be a first, I guess. So after the third touchdown in May of 2019, Rover 2, uh, probably sometime in July, will be landing there and hopping around. And then late next year, around November, December 2019, Hayabusa 2 will depart. And hopefully by late 2020, be able to deliver that capsule uh, to us uh, dropping it off in Australia again. I assume that this is somewhere in the Australian outback, and that was was that a previous location that was used before with the, the other Japanese return sample? Yeah, yeah, Hayabusa, the original Hayabusa dropped its 1,500 grains there, but yeah. I'm not sure exactly why that's uh, chosen as a target. Yeah, a lot of returning capsules generally just touch down in the ocean and then they're recovered, but I mean, I guess you could just use a big empty desert too, so. Exactly, it's l less likely to get lost, you know, in something, and you know, thicket somewhere, or, I don't know, just be tougher to find. So yeah, so that's Hayabusa too, which is just absolutely rocking it right now. And so very exciting. Cool. All right. And next up, uh, Tess gets to work. Okay. I was going to say, this was a big week for uh, astronomy, you know, spacecraft. So, so Tess, which is the transiting exoplanet survey satellite, finally a good acronym. Uh, you don't even <laughs> want to look up what Minerva stood for. It's just... <laughs> You're right. I probably don't. But anyway, yeah, so this is uh this is a NASA space telescope. Uh, we launched it just earlier this year, April 18th, uh, 2018, and it's in an interesting orbit. It's uh, it's very elliptical, very uh, eccentric, and it's inclined 37 degrees uh, from the, uh, you know, relative to the Earth's equator. And the uh, it's in a 2-1 resonance with the moon. I love it. So, mm -hmm. yeah, anytime it's at apogee, uh, the moon is kind of off to the side 90 degrees. And so it basically manages to manages to not get ever too close to the moon to significantly perturb the orbit. So it's a it's a evidently a very rare but also a very stable type of orbit. So that's great for what it's doing because it is a uh, it's an exoplanet hunting satellite, and it's using what they call the transit method. So the first planets we discovered using telescopes on the ground. It was a lot of work because you had to look at one star at a time. And so this is why Kepler was so revolutionary. It basically would just look at a whole patch of the sky just above the galactic plane and measure the brightness of, I don't know how many tens or hundreds of thousands of stars at once, probably tens of thousands of stars, and it would just be able to measure their brightness 
over and over and over again with a, whatever kind of cadence it wanted to do. And it would look in this field and ever one of these stars, the starlight would dip a little bit. And then if it dipped again and again and had some kind of periodicity to it, you'd be able to infer that, you know, maybe it's a sun, su star spot or something, right? There's a couple other things it could be, but it could be a planet passing between us and the star and causing that little bit of dip in uh, starlight. And this could be, you know, a fraction of a percent change in brightness. These are super sensitive cameras that we can now do with, uh, you know, however many megapixels we got up there. And so that's how come, you know, before Kepler, we had, you know, hundreds of exoplanets discovered, planets outside our solar system. But post-Kepler, Kepler brought it up to, I think, 3,800 roughly was kind of the last count I, you know, had seen. And so TESS, though, is basically next generation Kepler. And rather than just looking at one patch of the sky, it's going to observe 85% of the sky, roughly. Where I'm guessing, I didn't see it actually spelled out, but I'm guessing that 15% is the galactic plane. There's so much dust there that you can't really do much because mm -hmm. it looks like it's targeting the entire sky. And so it observes in what, are, what they're calling observation sectors. So these are gigantic swaths of sky. So 24 by... 96 degrees, right? So we're talking, I mean, 96 degrees, that's, you know, uh, half a degree for a full moon. So we're talking hundreds of full moons across in that direction and 24 uh, wide. And uh, when it does one of these swaths, it's going to be spending a total of two years observing. It's going to do 27.4 days at each of these uh, observation sectors, which is two spacecraft orbits, right? If you know, right, a moon orbit relative to the stars is 27.4 days. And so it's, you know, it's going to look at these swaths and basically see, right, if any of the stars in them, you know, their starlights dipped and due to what's likely a planet passing between us and the star and we go and follow that up and determine whether it's a planet what kind of properties it has and so they're hoping they've got maybe half a million stars uh when they're done with this survey because it's going to start it's doing the southern hemisphere right now and it's going to do as many of these observation sectors as needed until it maps out the whole southern hemisphere of the sky and then it's going to switch to the north half of the sky and uh they're hoping yeah half a million stars uh that are bright enough uh for them to be able to use this technique for and extrapolating from previous measures they're looking for maybe 20,000 plus exoplanets which again is going to increase the sample right now by you know a factor of five at least yeah well i wanted to give you a quick uh correction burn here so the uh the percentage of the sky that it's missing is simply due to geometry so it will cover the north and south ends of the sky two or three times depending on how high of a latitude you're talking about and then the actual equator will will have a gap and then there'll be kind of spikes sticking up from the gap that it'll miss so i just put a ah. an image in the show notes or i'm sorry in the in the discord chat um that not only show the huge huge amount of sky uh that tess is going to cover but it also shows uh the kepler and the kepler 2 like the extended mission um field so the amount of of difference here is is absolutely staggering and so don't get hung up on the you know 10 percent or whatever that it's missing because it this is really really incredible right i was gonna say i mean i can't imagine I, kepler wasn't covering even 10 percent, right <laughs> right yeah and so yeah and and that's that's one thing that i was uh i guess thinking about this mission is that you know you're looking at these dips in brightness right and you're spending less than a month at each field or observation sector so that means if something has a period greater than 30 days, you ain't going to catch it right. unless it's at the poles where they have this sort of 
overlapping coverage. So I'm guessing they'll be able to catch long period systems at the mm. poles, but otherwise they're going to be mainly selected towards catching, uh, uh, discovering, yeah, short period exoplanets. Yeah, I, I think of those poles, I think they have like a circle that's pretty much under constant observation, mm -hmm. which is like insane. <laughs> Yeah, right. It's hoping to find more than 20,000 exoplanets, but these are, I guess not surprisingly, not necessarily Earth-like planets, right? I mean, they might be closer in size, but if that's the case, they're closer to their star, and if they're further out, then they would have to be gas giants, I would guess. Mm -hmm. The first thing we can rule out is that if, if we're talking about something at an AU from a sun-like star, um, yeah. then you're going to have to observe it for... Even even the two-year lifetime, you're not looking at either of the poles yeah. longer than that. So I don't think it would be able to catch anything at an AU around a solar mass star. But um, these these biases uh, are all over the place. And so at least when you know what you're sensitive to, right, close in uh, planets as well as more massive ones, then you can kind of make uh, corrections for that and try to, like, estimate what you are missing. But the really good thing, I think, about tests is that by sampling the whole sky, it's going to be looking at, you know, the type of planets that are intrinsically in all the different directions, right? Because if Kepler looked in a place that just happens to be, you know, maybe, you know, such and such type of planets happen to form near the galactic disk, well, any studies done on Kepler data is going to be biased towards that. And so the fact that it's looking towards the disk, it's looking at the poles and everywhere in between should give us a more representative sample uh, but still subject to all these biases, in particular the high cadence. Uh, yeah. It's half a month. I mean, some of these worlds, right, have hour-long periods, and so it's not that <laughs> uh, bad. 30 days does seem like a while by some standards, but it's also very short by others, right? Pluto's 250 years to go around the Earth once, so there's everything in between. Large dynamic range. <laughs> and, I mean, it, it, it can see planets down to Earth size, right? Just they, they got to be close in. Yeah, it's got the sensitivity for that. But exactly as you say. So did we talk about the two uh, the two planets that we caught in the first light images? Yeah, right. Why, why is this news? Yeah. Right. So Tess, uh, the big news was that it announced the first two exoplanets that it discovered. And so the first is called Pi Mense C. Well, wait, hang on, hang on. You have to you have to point out that in the very first set of photos that it took, Right. They call them like first light images where it's just like, OK, let's make sure that everything's up and running just in the first images. We discovered oh, yeah. two exoplanets. <laughs> yep. That's a good point. <laughs> right. So it's it's off to a good start. And so you can see how that 20,000 target might really be reached, you know. And so coming from these first light images, um, they found uh, a super Earth orbiting a star in the southern sky called Pi Mense. So it's dubbed Pi Mense C. It's actually the second exoplanet in the system. So Pi Mense B is the other planet around the star. So Pi Mense C is in a 6.3-day uh, uh, orbit around uh, a sun-like star. It's actually pretty close to the uh, surface temperature of the sun and thus you know, comparable in mass, uh, lying about 60 light years away. And so the stats on this one is that it has a radius of 1.8 Earths. Okay, so almost twice the size, hence why we kind of call these things super-Earths. And uh, it has a mass of four and a half times the Earth, so quite a bit more massive. You'd weigh quite a bit more there, you know, four and a half times as much. Well, actually, I guess not exactly four and a half times, because the radius goes and makes it a little easier for you. And how much is this exoplanet worth uh, in mineral costs? <laughs> billions yeah, and billions of dollars, right? Right. I'd say doesn't, that, doesn't matter that it's 50 or 60 light years away. 
So let's do our short and sweet. We got four of them this week, and what's our first one? All right, SpaceX and Boeing say they both meet NASA crew safety requirements. At the recent AIAA meeting in Orlando, representatives for both SpaceX and Boeing expressed confidence that their launch vehicles meet all safety requirements for transporting crew, including loss of crew, as well as launch and reentry risks. One key difference between the two companies is that once in operation, SpaceX will use a new Dragon 2 for each mission until it has a stable that can be vetted for reuse. Boeing, on the other hand, will begin reuse of Starliner immediately. Both organizations also expressed excitement about non-NASA use of their vehicles, possibly even commercial missions to the ISS. Crewed missions to Mars face significant radiation hazard. Analysis of data from the ExoMars' Trace Gas Orbiter, which had measured the cosmic ray flux reaching the spacecraft during its trip to the Red Planet, found that a 12-month round-trip journey to Mars would expose travelers to 600 millisieverts of radiation, the equivalent of 600 chest x-rays. This is 60% of the career dose limit for astronauts just from the journey there, not including any orbiting or landing at Mars. Protecting future astronauts from this radiation will be necessary before such journeys can be carried out safely. HTV launches with return capsule. Uh, the HTV-7 resupply mission launched by JAXA will be equipped with a small return capsule for biological experiments. The HSRC, which is uh, the HTV small reentry capsule, is capable of transporting up to 20 kilograms of specimens. Once the HTV has departed the station and has begun its deorbit burn, the HSRC will detach from its mount on the HTV forward hatch and continue to deorbit. The capsule has no thrusters, but will auto automatically reorient itself on descent and deploy parachutes for splashdown in the Pacific Ocean where it will be recovered by JAXA. So that's really cool. I didn't know anything about that, by the way. So GEM-63 has its first test fire. So the Northrop Grumman GEM, which stands for Graphite Epoxy Motor, was fired up in Utah this past Thursday. The solid rocket motor will be used on ULA's Vulcan and Atlas V launch vehicles. This test was designed to reproduce conditions during an actual flight. The GEM-63 is intended for medium to large classes of launch vehicles. It measures 56 feet in length and provides 450,000 pounds of thrust. The second qualification test is scheduled for later this year in December. The motor is expected to be first flown on an Atlas V in late summer of 2019. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and correction burns. we got a few things to talk about here. Yeah, so first up is uh, some information about ICBMs and uh, the fact that they weren't hypergalls. Yeah, this is like a good little continuation of the discussion. So last week I talked about how ICBMs tend to be solid rockets or, or uh, uh, yeah, well, either solid rockets or hypergolic liquid propellants because that means that you can store them and they're ready to go pretty quickly because um, hypergalls tend to be storable propellants. This was in reference to the Damascus missile explosion. And uh, Ben Howler emailed us and pointed out um, that, yeah, you know, the early ICBMs were just regular cryogenics. Um, so uh, the R-7 rocket was LOX and kerosene. And actually the V-2 rocket, which I, I guess you could easily call the first uh, ICBM, I guess, I guess that definition might be a little uh, wonky, but that's uh, liquid oxygen and ethanol, is it? Some kind of alcohol. Yeah, it, it, yeah, 75% ethanol, which is kind of surprising how low enriched that is like you could you could drink 75 percent ethanol you could have a little bit and it wouldn't kill you wasn't it that now i'm trying to remember what we read when we read ignition but remember there was some t mention of like 
soldiers or or like the engineers like actually drinking this stuff and it would kill them so they had oh to... right 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 because oh, the <laughs> alcohol that we drink is ethyl alcohol not ethanol and so they actually might Oof. have reduced i mean i don't think this is correct because i don't think i'm remembering this right but i want to say that they actually reduced uh the purity of the alcohol because it was killing people but i yeah. think that there was actually some of the reason why uh possibly having to, to do with this volatility i don't know but there's some reason why it's not 100%. Oh, so so Chubby in the chat says that ethanol and ethyl alcohol are the same thing. Um, but anyway, like the the V2 actually, um, they had issues launch with their launch cadence. They thought that they could um, launch them faster than they than they use than they actually ended up being able to um, because of the difficulty of transporting locks. They just didn't see that they didn't see it coming. How incredibly difficult it is to to transport it especially by rail. So they had to, you know, increase their locks production and, and tried to ship it all over the place and just didn't work very well. Then Ben pointed out that, yeah, after that, we ended up moving towards um, uh, solid rockets. And we generally don't use hypergalls today. It's, it's all solids. Um, so thank you, Ben. Um, and then also uh, he pointed out that, yeah, there's no reason to think that you can't transport a nine meter diameter rocket uh, by sea. So Panamax, which is the uh, the size limitation for vehicles traveling through um, the Panama Canal, is three times nine meters uh, for the beam. So, and he points out that bigger things than the BFR are regularly transported by sea. I don't remember you saying that this was not possible by sea. Yeah, it just it just seems so. like it seems like if you can build rockets on the East Coast, go ahead and do that. I mean, I, I think for me the big thing is that SpaceX specifically built. Uh, Falcon 9 to be transportable by land. So the departure here seems, it, it seems really weird for SpaceX to build a rocket in one place and ship it by sea since they spent so much time trying not to do that. And uh, oh, D Dan has got a really good point. He says you won't be able to build a rocket that's too large to ship by sea uh, just because there's a, a reasonable size. I mean, in the future we may be able to, but at the moment we can't do that. One thing that we did kind of get incorrect is that I think I had mentioned about how you're going to transport this thing down the road, but actually this is being built at the port of, I guess it's like Port of Los Angeles or somewhere like that. It's being built like right on the ocean anyway, so they don't have to transport it anywhere. But yeah, so maybe future BFRs will be manufactured in Florida or maybe in Texas. Yeah. I think maybe this first one is just because, you know, this is the first one and so it's just faster for them to just, you know, drive down the road or wherever they have to back to SpaceX headquarters and, you know, go get something. I mean, I don't know, but perhaps that's the reason why it's just a, a little bit easier. Yeah, than to, to start a, I mean, starting a rocket factory is yeah. kind of a big deal. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then uh, Ben had a question for us. He said, um, what do you guys think about E2E? Uh, so, you know, the earth to earth use of BFR using BFR like a like a jetliner and he he says that you know gwen shotwell sure seems committed to it but there's no talk of ramping up production to the point where they could actually do this you know in a worldwide network i don't know what, what do you guys think about e2e well i watched the presentation that gwen shotwell gave in one big case that she makes or one big difference is that these vehicles because they can go anywhere in the world within about like 40 minutes or so they can launch 
many more times per day than a traditional aircraft. So that is how you get the economy of scale is, you know, just because you can get from New York to Tokyo and back and you can do that in about like 30 minutes, which obviously is not really true, but you can do it a lot faster than you could with a traditional aircraft. That's how you make the money is just that you can transport more people in a shorter period of time. But as for the rest of it, I, I don't know. Um, I mean, like the actual engineering side of things, uh, it seems pretty far-fetched, but just as soon as you say it's not possible, someone proves that you're wrong. So I don't know. That's a fair point. I say I, I can't say much one way or the other of you know the feasibility of it, but there certainly would be a huge market just how many people are just traveling all the time for work. And if you can go and just cut that down to less than an hour for these trips around the world, that would be such a big deal. Yeah, but I mean, in the same way, FedEx picking up rocket mail on the surface seems like a great idea because they could ship huge, uh, huge masses of uh, of mail across the country in you know super, super short amount of time. But mm. the fact of the matter is that FedEx is not going to do rocket mail because there are so many practical limitations that get in the way. And... I think in the future, yes, we'll totally have suborbital flights as as part of, you know, the travel options for humans. But I, I think that the amount of practicality standing between not just us and and one flight, because one, one flight's no problem, but actually reaching mm -hmm. those economies of scale where that ticket isn't just so exorbitantly expensive that it doesn't actually affect the market. It It, it seems like there's just too much there for it to really be practical in the short term in the short term i mean like when i would still be fit enough to take that flight but, but i mean boy does gwen shall seem very confident about it like yeah. she's she's a whole hog on this one yeah uh, but yeah sorry ben i, I think that we're kind of we're kind of down on it i mean his, his email doesn't make it super clear what he thinks but i'm guessing he's not he's not a super big fan um and then next up we had uh, an awesome post on our subreddit from user nero bro uh, just uh, fantastic. So he clarified the differences between center of gravity, center of pressure, center of lift, and then he also mentioned moment of inertia. So we, we kind of got bogged down last week in these definitions, so I just wanted to run through these real quick. Um, and then you can go to the post on our subreddit. We'll have a link in the show notes if you want more uh, more reading. So center of gravity is determined by where the rocket would balance. And this changes with mass distribution. Center of pressure is determined roughly by the silhouette that the, uh, that the vehicle forms. So if you were to put the vehicle on a piece of paper and trace around it, the area of that tracing would give you center of pressure or a rough approximation of the center of pressure. And center pressure changes with the angle of attack, but not with mass. Um, center of lift is generally determined experimentally. Um, it changes drastically with uh, angle of attack, and it's uh, very hard to determine computationally um, because it is the sum of all of the lift and drag forces on a vehicle so it's it's very complex um, and the nearbro also pointed out that moment of inertia is also worth considering which is the amount of torque it takes to actually rotate an object around its center of gravity so um, just as the center of gravity 
changes depending on the mass distribution. Moment of inertia also does, but moment of inertia also changes with the extent of that distribution. So if you've got a lot of mass far away from the center of gravity, you'll have a large moment of inertia, whereas the same center of gravity, but all of the mass close to it results in a lower moment of inertia. And that's going to be one of the big things that you have to take into account when you're trying to control uh, this vehicle re-entering and, and getting it to point in two drastically different directions and make that switch quick enough that you can engage your rockets and, and land safely. Yeah, that was a good definition of uh, the center of pressure because I was kind of struggling to define mm. it last week. And actually, he put it very well. He said, you know, take the silhouette with respect to the angle of attack. What would that look like? And then pretty much find the center of gravity of that, if you will. And I put that in scare quotes. I don't mean the actual center of gravity, but it's kind of like that. So it's kind of like the center of gravity with respect to the vehicle's like silhouette. Yeah, if it's if it's totally flat, where does it balance then? Yeah. Yeah. Really good. So th- uh, my my comment on Nero Bro posted that, and I immediately commented "hero" because it's just yeah, that was clutch. Yeah. <laughs> such that a was such a great comment. All right, all right. Let's move on to upcoming spaceflight events. We got a couple of things. We just got uh, one launch, one conference, and then we have one installation as well. So, what is our launch that we have? So, on September 25th, the Ariane 5 ECA will be taking the Azure Space 2 slash Intelsat 38 and Horizons 3E telecom satellites to geostationary orbit. Uh, This will be on the 25th at 2153 UTC with a window extending from 2153 UTC to 2238 UTC. This will be going from the... This will be launched from the Ariane Launch Area 3 in Koro. And then the only other thing we have is the rendezvous and capture of HTV7. So that's going to be broadcast on NASA TV on September 27th at 6.30 a.m. Eastern time is when the coverage begins. And then the capture is scheduled at 8 a.m. Uh, Eastern time, of course. And then lastly, we have a conference coming up, and that is uh, the International Astronautical Congress, the IAC. And that is uh, going to be in Bremen, Germany this year, starting on the 1st of October through the 5th. Uh, I don't know who all is going to be there, but mostly like the bigwigs, the heavy hitters, they're all going to show up. So maybe we'll get a cool SpaceX presentation like we did the past couple of years. I'm certainly hoping so. And I know that Elon just did his thing last week, but hopefully we'll get something, you know, next week as well. While you're there, look out at the uh, at the Arian Space booth. TU Delft is going to have their D.A.R.E. Uh, slash Project Stratos team there. And I hear uh, they will have a 3D printed titanium rocket nozzle with them. Uh, but go check them out because they've been on the show before and they're pretty cool. Yep. All right. So those are your upcoming spaceflight events. All right. That means it's time to deorbit the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show too, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for Patreon, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both. And you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. And that's all. So we will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.